Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. The 30s and 40s were some of the first instances of aerial bombardment of civilian populations, an indication of their destructive power. We often point to the Nazi bombing of in Guernica, Spain in 1937, immortalized by Pablo Picasso, as the first instance of what happens when, quote, the bomber gets through, to paraphrase then-Prime Minister Stanley Baldwin. But just a few months later, across a continent, the world got a glimpse of what bombardment would look like in one of the world's most built-up and international cities of the time, Shanghai in Bloody Saturday, August 14th, 1937. Paul French's Bloody Saturday, Shanghai's Darkest Day, published by Penguin Australia back in 2018 and recently republished by Penguin Southeast Asia Arm, is a short telling of what happened on that fateful day. Paul French was born in London, educated there and in Glasgow, and lived and worked in Shanghai for many years. His book, Midnight in Peking, was a New York Times bestseller, a BBC Radio 4 Book of the Week, a Mystery Writers of America Edgar Award winner for Best Fact Crime, and a Crime Writers Association Dagger Award for Nonfiction. Both Midnight in Peking and French's other book, City of Devils, a Shanghai Noir, are currently being developed for television. Today, Paul and I will talk about what happened in Shanghai on August 14th and what it tells us about the nature of the city, the foreigners that lived there, and how the rest of the Sino-Japanese War developed from there. So, Paul, thank you so much for joining me on the Asian View Books podcast. I think I'd like to start with maybe situating Bloody Saturday in the time that it's in, you know, amongst kind of the broader Sino-Japanese War and then the Second World War after that. Kind of when in the conflict are we talking about? What's the state of the war between China and Japan? And how do the powers that would eventually become the allies and Axis feel about things? Well, Nicholas, thank you for inviting me along. Um, I think uh, where, where we put a start date on, um, on Chinese-Japanese aggressions, uh, Japanese aggression towards China and where we start the Second World War depends on how you look at things. I mean, but and we, we could go back to the time of the First World War and the Japanese annexation of um, Shandong, which, of course, was such an issue at the Treaty of Versailles, and then the, the rancor that simmered after that. Um, 1930, 1932, uh, the annexation of Manchuria and the creation of uh, Manchukuo as a, as a Japanese-controlled state, and then a general push after that. Uh, but the summer of 1937 is when things really start to happen. The, the Japanese launch their occupations of um, Beijing and Tianjin in um, July. And then in August, we have the Japanese attack on the Chinese districts of Shanghai. <clears throat> Sorry. Um, those portions of the city that weren't part of the foreign concessions. And as a response to that, we have the, the, the really the, the disaster that was um, the bombings of August the 14th, which became known as Bloody Saturday. After August the 14th, it's really kind of game on for the Sino-Japanese War. Nothing, there is no pause after that. Um, the Japanese roll up the Yangtze. So, you know, not let, a month later or so, we have the horrific rape of Nanjing and the Chinese government eventually retreating to the wartime capital of Chongqing. Um, 
And then really, if you like, the Second World War really begins because Japan takes more of China. It then faces the British Empire on the border with Hong Kong. It's, it's facing the French Empire in Indochina and then eventually of, uh, and the British Empire in Singapore, the Dutch Empire in Indonesia. And then, of course, eventually facing the United States across the Pacific. And two years later, of course, um, uh, Britain and Germany go to war and we have the start of the European war. So it's two years before the start of the war in Europe. And of course, many people in the part of the world that I'm in, in Europe and America tend to think of the war as starting in 1939. Maybe Americans think of it as December 1941. But really, wherever you want to situate it, the Sino-Japanese war, certainly after Bloody Saturday, um, there, there, is, there is no... There is no more doubt that this is an all-out total war by Japan on China. I want to get a little bit more about about the city of Shanghai in a bit, but you know, it, it's even kind of before this, you kind of see a little bit of foreign politics happening. I mean, you open your book with, um, I believe, it's what Claire Claire Chenault is in town for some reason. Um, he's he's helping the Chinese build up their air force. Kind of what's what's happening there? Well. Um, Chiang Kai-shek, the, the nationalist government, were, was not unaware of, of Japanese um, uh, aggression towards China um, and wanted uh, to counter it, if possible. The, they had been building up the army. Um, but uh, a gap in China's defences, if you like, was that it had a very weak and small um, air force. Um, and it was working with various different people to try and um, improve its air force. It had worked with the Italians. It, it worked with them, the Germans, um, and clearly Chenault had retired from the U.S. Air Force and uh, came out on the invitation of Madame Chiang Kai-shek, Mei Ling-sung, to <clears throat> really do an audit on the um, Chinese Air Force. And he came to Nanjing and he went around the various um, Chinese Air Force bases. He'd stopped in Japan on the way from America to have a look at what Japan's, to try and get an idea of how strong their Air Force was. Um, and he happened to be in China, in Nanjing, um, when the Japanese attack on the Chinese portions of Shanghai begun. And so, uh, which, was, which was launched really from the battle cruiser, the Izumo, which was a, a massive Japanese battle cruiser moored on the Huangpu River, right, right beside what, what is the, the, the uh, Russian consulate there, where the Suzhou Creek joins uh, the Huangpu River. People who know Shanghai will know that bend of the river. That, that, that's where the Izumo was. And it started literally shelling into um, the Japanese districts of Jabei and Baoshan. Um, and of course, uh, creating um, disasters as well in neighboring Hong Kong, which was technically part of the international settlement, as we'll talk about, but, but was also where the major Japanese district was, what, what was known locally as Little Tokyo at the time. So he was asked, uh, Chenault was asked by um, Chiang Kai-shek and Madame Chiang to, to see if there was any way to respond to this. Chiang was sending troops to the area, but um, he was like, what can we do? Can we basically take out this Japanese battle cruiser and stop this horrific shelling of Chinese Shanghai? So let's talk about the international settlement. Um, I guess, what is your national settlement? What's it like? And who are the people that are living and working there? Oh, well, that's a rather big question, but I'll give it a that go. It is a big question, I know. Um, so, but I, I, and I think it's a good one as well, because um, often it's not quite understood. The foreign concessions, of course, were are an, are an interesting conundrum to me, 
because the Shanghai foreign concessions are, of course, a prize of imperialism. Um, they were taken through violence in the first opium war, at, 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 you know, at, at extracted from China through genuinely unfair treaties. Um, but it wasn't actually a complete colony. It was what we might call semi-colonial in the sense that it wasn't like Hong Kong, a crown colony or, or Singapore. It wasn't run from London or run from anywhere. It was created as an international settlement with its own municipal council that it was divided between the Americans, the British and the Japanese and various other powers. Eventually, most of those came together to form what was known as the international settlement. Um, for anyone who, who knows Shanghai, pretty much everything north of the Yan'an Expressway and, and down into Yangpu, up, up about as far as what's now um, Lushun Park. <clears throat> and the French kept their own concession separate, which was more under the control of Paris, but also largely ran itself. And people will know if they know Shanghai again, the area that's generally regarded as the former French concession. Um, there was within that the old city, Nantau, uh, you know, which was the, the original walled city of Shanghai. And then on the outskirts were various parts of Shanghai that were still controlled by the nationalist Chinese government, Jiabei and Baoshan, as I've described it, as I've mentioned in northern Shanghai. And then further to the to the sort of northeast was Jiangwen, which uh, they uh, uh, were also making into a alternative uh, capital, if you like, uh, for Shanghai to administer Shanghai. And there's still a lot of rather wonderful 1930s uh, mod modern and um, Art Deco architecture out there that was built at the time, and, and an airfield. So um, the, the city was controlled by the municipal council, often described as being under British control, but, but the British were certainly very important, but uh, also the Americans were there and all the other treaty powers were there. Um, France ran its concession, but most importantly, perhaps, those areas were also where foreign troops were stationed. So the 4th Marines, um, the French had troops there. The British had various rotating regiments there. And along the Huangpu, which is where the Izumo was, uh, was, was bombing um, uh, Jabe and Baoshan, which was then known as Warship Alley. So the Huangpu River, as we know now, right in front of the Bund, was just a line of war battleships at that point. French, British, American, and Japanese. Um, so very tense and, and a very uh, uh, dangerous, volatile febrile situation. And we should also mention, because people forget, that at that time, Shanghai was, if you combine the concessions and Chinese Shanghai, we're talking about the fourth, maybe fifth biggest city in the world, right? London, New York, Paris, and then it's somewhere between Berlin and Shanghai. But of course, the important thing about Shanghai is of those five most populous cities in the world, it is by far the most densely populated city in the world. Of course, it's a majority Chinese city, but within that is the foreign population. And the foreign population is very um, um, uh, is, is a real assortment, which is why I say also that sometimes, um, although Shanghai is a product of imperialism, it's also um, somewhere that became a sanctuary. Because as well as the businessmen and the other people that have come to Shanghai and, and the various military people, we also have something like 20 to 25,000 Russian emigres, the white Russians that left Russia after the Bolshevik revolution. And we also, by, by this time, by 1937, are seeing the arrival of European Jewish refugees who, uh, within a couple of years, will also number something like 
20 or 25,000 people who were able to find sanctuary in the city. So that's the conundrum of Shanghai and the international element of Shanghai. And of course, it becomes this fascinating mix in terms of architecture, culture, peoples, and so on. So we should actually talk about what actually happens on, on Bloody Saturday. So, so why are these planes launched? Um, why does the bombing happen? Um, and then what happens in the immediate aftermath of, of the settlement being bombed? Well, there's no other way to put it except that it was a mess. Um, Chenault was asked to respond, to come up with a plan to respond. Um, he decided that he would try and fly two waves of Chinese Air Force planes in, uh, some dive bombers and some regular bombers, um, and try and take out the Izumo. On any day, given the level of training that the Chinese pilots had received so far at that time, this would have been a really tricky target and would have been a really tricky target for anyone. You're talking about going in to a, a highly densely populated area where, you know, missing even slightly is going to be an absolute disaster. Added to this, Shanghai had just had a typhoon pass over. So it was raining, it was windy, and it had very low cloud cover. Chinese pilots, although they'd been trained to do bombing runs, had not been trained to fly at low altitude doing bombing runs, which was even more difficult. Very complicated for the bomb sighters. So they decided to try it anyway. And Chenault knew all of this, but took the decision to give it a go. And they also didn't inform the population of Shanghai <laughs> that this was going to happen. There were not air raid sirens uh, telling people that this was going to happen like Guernica that you mentioned at the start. This was an aerial bombing with, with, with no warning. It wasn't uh, sort of like in the London Blitz or so on, or even the Chongqing Blitz a couple of years later, where um, you, you, had a no, you, you could get into um, some sort of um, cover. Uh, nobody knew that this was going to happen. The first wave of planes flew over at about 11, 11.20 in the morning. Um, weren't so destructive. Um, they did manage to miss and hit a warehouse in Pudong, which did kill some Chinese workers and a couple of Europeans that were there. Um, they sent down some uh, uh, bombs that, that missed the Izumo, but landed in the water, narrowly missing British and American uh, warships, which wouldn't have gone down very well for Chinese uh, Western relations if they'd have hit one. Um, and then they disappeared, and everyone was slightly surprised that this had happened, but went about their normal Saturday business. It was a Saturday, obviously. Um, and then in the afternoon, the second wave came, and these were the bombers, and this was where the real disaster happened. So the first bombs fell uh, just after four o'clock in the afternoon, and um, famously, uh, and, and se several did land. Uh, again, one landed down near the Bund, uh, on, on the Bund, which, which killed Quite a number of people, but at 4.27 p.m., one landed right outside the front door of the Cathay Hotel, which people will know as the Peace Hotel on, um, on the Bund in, in, in Shanghai. And that caused a large amount of devastation. I mean, absolutely horrific. The book has some photos, and I did certainly did not put the most graphic photos in. It was um, a normal Saturday. People were going about their business. They were going for tea, and, and drinks and lunch, late lunches in the um, cafe. Um, they were going into the arcade next door uh, to shop. The, and when the bombs fell, one landed literally outside the front door of the cafe hotel and another landed right near the, an adjacent building called Sassoon Arcade, 
um, which was full of antique and curio shops and a tea shop and, and destroyed most of the shops there. Absolute disaster. And it happened at 4.27 p.m. And the clock on the front of the Cathay Hotel stopped at 4.27 p.m. Another one had fallen outside the hotel opposite, the Palace Hotel, what's now the um, Swatch Peace Art Hotel or something. Um, and um, that, again, was absolutely disastrous. Uh, blew out all the windows. People coming in and out of the hotel were killed. Uh, people in bedrooms were killed and only found much later due to the blast damage. So that happened and it was an absolute disaster. Um, lots and lots of people killed. Um, cars on fire. Um, just, just horrific. And then slightly later at uh, 4.43, a bomb fell, several bombs fell outside from another bomber, missed again completely and fell outside the Great World um, Amusement Palace, which was a, a, a giant amusement center, which is, is still there on the corner of um, Shizanglu and, and Yananlu, what was then Tibet Road and um, the Avenue Edward VII. And these were even more devastating. One, because the, the Great World Amusement Palace had been turned into a center for refugees from Jabe and Paoshan, Chinese refugees, and so was packed full of people milling around outside, full of people inside, cars and traffic going past. That was a disaster. But secondly, for whatever reason, um, shrapnel bombs were used. And so the effect of shrapnel bombs, which explode and then throw out this burning hot chunks of sharp metal everywhere, you can imagine the evisceration and the, and the destruction that took place. They also hit a gas main, which added to the, to the disaster of it. And we just see pictures of bodies everywhere and, and cars just destroyed in the street. But the really damaging thing about the Great World, which is why the, the total number of dead at the Great World, which was in the French concession, was higher than the, the death toll at the Cafe and Palace hotels, which was near the um, Bund and in the international concession, was due largely to the shrapnel. So many people were injured and, of course, died later. So complete disaster and the city thrown into turmoil. And any, although at the time it wasn't clear how many people had died, even by immediate estimates and then eventually trying to work out later totals, um, this was by far the, um, the worst carnage that had been seen in a civilian city from, from aerial bombing, the only one before really being Guernica. And this was several magnitudes worse than, than Guernica. And well, and, and this kind of gets at um, my next question, which is kind of, you know, it is one of the first things of air bombardment of civilian population alongside Guernica. As you note, it's in a much more densely populated, a much more, um, least a more widespread devastation and loss of life. But did the bombing, did this bombing affect attitudes as much as, I guess, the bombing of Guernica kind of reportedly did? Well, certainly, I mean, attitudes around the world. I mean, this, this, this was a massive news story around the world. And um, it, it, it's interesting. Funnily enough, I've just been wrapping up a, um, a radio documentary uh, on this period, not, not about this in particular, but on the, on the 1930s for BBC Radio. And um, I was using lots of um, old newsreel. And, and there is so much newsreel that went out of the bombing of Shanghai. It was filmed, um, and in the book I talk about, you know, the journalists that that filmed and recorded and photographed this. So there was there was newsreel footage shown in cinemas all around the world. Um, it was considered a brazen uh, uh, attack, and it was slightly glossed over that it was a um, that it was a disastrous sort of own goal by the, by the Chinese air force, um, which is sort of interesting. Um, 
when I first wrote this book, I wanted to do it because we were looking at the 80th anniversary of the Sino-Japanese War, thinking of it as 1937 to 2017. And I thought of it in terms of the Chinese government was looking to organize various events and patriotic films and lots of stuff was going on. And within that, nobody was really talking about Bloody Saturday in Shanghai, despite it clearly being a seminal moment in the development of the Sino-Japanese War. And the reason, of course, is that it's really tricky to know quite how to deal with it. Um, because these bombs that fall, that cause this awful carnage, are Chinese bombs falling on largely Chinese people in the international settlement and the French concession and, and a couple land over in Pudong as well. Um, so well, it's, 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 very, like, it's hard it's, to know how to deal with it. It's because it's, it's an instance of kind of quote, well, you could call it friendly fire. You know, it's you're right. The bombs drops are, are Chinese ones. And, and how do you I mean, I guess maybe in the immediate aftermath of the bombing, like how does China deal with this, with the fact that it was their bombs that fell on the settlement? OK, so it, 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 it's immediately seen as a disaster um, and immediately the rumor mills start and uh, you know, quite funny looking at looking at our age now, and I didn't think about this so much in 2017. But immediately, the conspiracy theories start flying around, right? That this uh, that that they were never intending to hit the Japanese battle cruiser Izumo. They always wanted to hit both the international settlement and the French concession because they wanted to. Chiang Kai-shek and the nationalists wanted to lure uh, Great Britain, the United States, France, and so on into the war with, with Japan, right? I mean, this was, this was a common uh, thing that was talked about at the time that um, Chiang Kai-shek very much wanted to involve the, the Western powers in the war against Japan because obviously, you know, it was, it was not going particularly China's way at the time. Um, but there were other rumors that they weren't Chinese bombs, that this was Japanese shells that were made to look like Chinese, the Chinese doing dropping the bombs as, as on purpose. There were others who said that it was a damaged plane that wanted to drop its bombs on the, on the race course, which is adjacent to the, the great world and in dropping bomb terms, not that far from the cafe hotel um, and missed accidentally. Uh, and Chiang Kai-shek himself and Madam Chang writing to um, some foreigners who were very concerned about what had happened, claimed that they were never intending that, that, that they would have hit the Izumo but as they flew over the city, Japanese anti-aircraft fire hit the bottom of a couple of the planes and dislodged the bomb racks. And so the bombs fell without being actually, you know, anyone pressing the, the trigger. Um, so it's um, the only thing that we, we, we do know, of course, is that, is that they were Chinese bombs that fell on there. It was a case that the pilots and the bomb sighters had an incredibly difficult job they weren't really trained for it the weather conditions were terrible and clearly Chenault took the decision to give it a go and it ended disastrously so so there was all of these rumors flying around though the general uh, the, the officials in charge of the international settlement of French concession seem to have immediately and unquestioningly you know I mean have known that this was an attempt to take out the Izumo that went horrendously wrong but of course, none of this, all of this only happened because of the Japanese open aggression against the Chinese quarters of Shanghai. Mm -hmm. So there, there was one kind of distinction in the book that kind of jumped out at me upon reading it. Um, and it, 
there are many reasons why this would be the case. But in the aftermath of the bombing, you note that I think you note that the deaths of foreigners were named, but the deaths of local Chinese were merely tallied. And that, of course, can be a function of just the overall death toll. Um, but how does the bombing, I think, kind of how does it reflect? You can call it class divides, national divides in Shanghai at the time. Well, I mean, it, it, one of the things is that when you read the, the foreigner accounts of, of, the, of the day, which, which obviously I've used to, to build up uh, things a lot, it's a fairly small community. In turn, and, and so often people who are sorting out the dead bodies and trying to put fires out and trying to see if they can rescue people who are with part of the, you know, the, the voluntary Shanghai, Shanghai Volunteer Corps, um, the fire brigade, the, the police, the, the municipal police or, or the um, French concession police, they, they often seem to, they often know the people that have been killed. They, they know their names um, uh, or, or they are people of some notoriety who are in the city. Robert Reichauer, who was a very well-known uh, sinologist and Japanologist at the time who was visiting, was killed at the bomb that fell on the Palace Hotel. Um, and, and so that, that was noted. Some other sort of local notables were killed. Um, foreigners, by and large, also managed uh, either their bodies were taken to the hospitals or the morgues, or and, and recorded, or if they were injured, they 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 went to hospitals. That wasn't the case with many Chinese. Now we we do know because the Chinese uh, Buddhist Red Cross and, and other organisations were also involved. Um, we do know the names of, of of some, if you like, again local local notable. <laughs> Uh, Chinese uh, figures, but the vast majority of the dead are unnamed and largely unknown Chinese. Now, now there are all sorts of reasons for this. That the fact that the newspapers didn't pursue the names harder is perhaps one of them. But it's also the case that uh, many, particularly of the Chinese that were killed, the group of Chinese that were killed down near the uh, Bund, which was one of the first bombs, and then the majority of the ones that were killed, the Chinese citizens that were killed outside the great world were indeed refugees from um, Baoshan and Jiabei who had come across the bridge. You'll, you'll, people will know, I think, if they know anything about Shanghai, the famous picture of everyone around that time streaming across the garden bridge, the metal garden bridge, which is still there, Why Baidu, uh, streaming across that from Hong Kong into the settlement and the start of the Bund near the British consulate. Um, <clears throat> that was taken from the ninth floor of, of broad, the Broadway Mansions building, which is also still there. Um, so many of these people were anonymous in a sense. Uh, their, their names were not known. That they, they were refugees uh, milling around. The other thing about the Great uh, World Bomb particularly was, as I mentioned, they were shrapnel bombs. And many people, I think, were just wounded and literally often being refugees or, or unable to get to ambulances or be taken by ambulances, they just managed to crawl off somewhere or walk off somewhere and then they just died in alleyways. And I have in the book some uh, remembrances by various journalists walking around the city that evening after the bombings, reporting that in the, uh, the, the Lilong, the traditional Lilong alleyways and laneways of Shanghai, there were just dead bodies that were left there. And as yet, there was not time to, to deal with them all. One thing I should point out is that that evening, knowing full well that every ambulance and every fire engine was on duty, that the, the police and the volunteer corps of the settlements were all working as hard as they could to, to, to save people, to find bodies, to, to, to clean things up. 
and also knowing um, uh, knowing that the hospitals were full to overflowing, uh, the Japanese started shelling Jabe and um, Hong uh, and and Baoshan again, as well as the edges of Hongku, continuing the um, flood of refugees, continuing the killing over there. And that so that night when um, Jabe and, and Baoshan were bombed, there was no available fire engines, no available ambulances for those people. So um, that that I think is partly why we have this this disproportionate um, response in in knowing exactly who was killed and why we don't have a really hard and fast number on how many people died. I do have another question. Like another thing that kind of jumps out to me in reading your book is kind of the number of the number of foreign correspondents that seem to be based in Shanghai at the time. Um, you know, it's far beyond, especially if you kind of compare it to the state of foreign correspondence today. Um, even even taking a more skeptical approach of today's government towards foreign reporting, it just seems like there's a there's just a lot more of them. Um, I wonder if you might talk a bit more about about the number of foreign correspondents and what they were, I guess, what their lives were like in Shanghai. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I did an entire book on foreign correspondence in China uh, called Through the Looking Glass um, with Hong Kong University Press, actually. Uh, and that was one of the things that fascinated me. And I think, you know, I, I wrote that book at a time when there were more foreign correspondents in China, actually, in the early 2000s. Um, and I think, I, I think one of the, well, there are several answers to this, of course. One is um, there were a lot more newspapers and a lot more media outlets then than arguably there are now. Um, and, and by that, I also mean, don't forget that a large number of correspondents who, who were Westerners were working for what we used to call the China Coast newspapers, right? So the North China Daily News, the China Press, the, the Shanghai um, Evening News, uh, the, the Shanghai Times, you know, and, and there were papers in Beijing and, and Tianjin and elsewhere. Um, so, so there were lots uh, of, of people working on local publications, English language, French language, Russian language, and so on. Um, but it is true that most newspaper, world newspapers had more reporters there. You know, when you think that the Chicago Tribune had five people in China, the New York Times had eight people in China, more at certain times. Um, and similarly for the big English newspapers and the big uh, French newspapers. Um, <clears throat> news magazines were, were a big thing then, of course. And, and Newsreel, many of the people that I use in this book were Newsreel reporters for Pathé or the March of Time or, or, or those kind of newsreel services. So there's a lot more journalists there. Now, one of the things is, I think, in general, I think we have to be honest and think, we always think our own time in history is the most important time in history. But, you know, the issue of China between the two world wars and at this time is monumentally bigger than the issue of China is now. Right now, that's not <laughs> to belittle any of the issues that we are dealing with around China now. Right, whether it be how we deal with the government, trade, human rights, or anything, it's not to belittle any of that. It is merely to say that in 1937, and really from the end of the First World War through the warlord era, into the establishment of the nationalist government, which then has you know a, a 10, 12 year battle against um against the japanese and then immediately goes into a civil war and then 
1949 revolution. Um, it is not clear to the world, or, and it is not clear to anyone in China, that China is going to hold together, right? This country just split up into warlord fiefdoms, perpetual civil wars, um, you know, uh, complete annexation by Japan. Who, who knows what's going to happen here? It is enormous. It is also the case, and I know I say this at a time of COVID, and, you know, I went through SARS in China as well, that we just have to look at what the effects of typhoons were, what the effects of drought were, the number of epidemics, uh, disease outbreaks, the intense, horrendous poverty of that period, um, and also the importance of China to global trade at that point, right? Well, of course, China's important to global trade now, but it is, it is super important to global trade then, right? Whether it be on the gold bullion markets, stocks and shares, or whether it be just exports of everything from eggs to pig bristles to silk to cotton, and of course, Shanghai is at the fulcrum of this importance. So I would argue, I am going to argue and have argued consistently that at that time, China is more important in terms of the world economy and in terms of whether or not it even will continue to exist than perhaps the issues are today. But we should also remember that, of course, there really wasn't any certainly within Shanghai, which is international concessions, any restriction on the number of journalists you could send. I mean, there wasn't any visa issues. All right. I think that's a great place to end it with that, with that really profound point. Um, to end our interview with Paul French, author of Bloody Saturday, Shanghai's Darkest Day. Paul, I actually have a couple more questions, uh, which is, where can people find your work and what's next for you? Well, hopefully... You can find my work pretty much anywhere in pretty much any format, I think. So um, anywhere you shop online or most bookshops that you go to and um, you can buy books and you can buy electronic books and there are audio books. <laughs> it's, 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 it's pretty hard to get away from them if you, if you do sort of China history. <laughs> um, so that shouldn't be a problem. Um, What's next for me? Well, I've been kind of rather busy working on uh, more books. Um, and I also have of late sort of moved more into writing film scripts and TV shows, as well as doing quite a lot of radio work with the BBC. But I have during lockdown not been, been more productive than I thought I was going to be at the start of the lockdown. And I have kind of been working on a trilogy of uh, uh, fiction, but with, with lots of real events filtered in, um, which is an espionage trilogy set during World War II Shanghai. Because, of course, as well as everything else, as well as being a center of newspapers and journalists and business and trade and the international concession being a place where all these nations come together, it was, of course, a massive center of espionage. And it was one of the places where in the, in the 1930s and into the Second World War, everyone was spying on everyone else. So I thought that I've done gangsters, I've done kind of, um, you know, um, the, the more formal business world of Shanghai. I've done, I've done the underworld and the demimonde. I thought it was time to do the spies. And I'm hoping, so given publication times, end of this year, next year, the first of what is a trilogy um, should come out.
Well, I look forward to hearing more about it when the time comes. So you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R. I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to AsiaReviewBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Facebook or on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews, plural. And you can find casual author interviews at the New Books Network at NewBooksNetwork.com. The ARB podcast is on all our favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends to support us interviewing those writing in, around, and about Asia. Next week, join us with an interview with Mark David Baer, author of The Ottomans, Khans, Caesars, and Caliphs. But before then, thank you so much, Paul, for joining me today. Thanks, Nicholas. It's a pleasure.